Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast. And today we have a friend calling in from Malibu, California. It seems like all the stunt people are in Malibu for some reason. And his name is Fred north he's got a book out called flying sideways welcome to the show fred how you doing today thank you so much i appreciate it all good thank you so you ended up in la you grew up in africa yes and you ended up in la what do you think about that transition thinking about that as a kid till now i mean if it would have been overnight it would have been a shock but there's a 350 page (laughs) explaining the transition but i mean at the end of the day i think uh, anything is possible you know, it was never my intent to really, you know, live in LA at the end. But I'm super happy that, you know, uh, I've done that. And, you know, it's the same planet. So not a problem. So when you talk about personality, is there a personality that resembles a stuntman's personality? Yes, I, I think so. You have two sort of uh, personality as far as uh, doing action things or a job that require outside skill. So you have people that are dealing with decision-making process and anything you do in your life with your with their instinct. So you're more like an instinctive person, which means, you know, you have a gut feeling that's right, but there is no, you didn't think about it uh, too much. You, you didn't do a, a business plan. You just know it's good. Okay, so I'm more that kind of person and any stunt a person will be a little bit like that. He knows it's going to be fine. It doesn't mean he's not going to back it up with data and numbers and stuff, but his first feeling and decision is 99.9% right. And I think that's what the stunt, you know, people that are more technical and those people need to have a protocol, need to have a plan, they need to check the data and then they make a decision. You gotcha. know? I've talked to a couple of jet pilots and I would think, you know, being a jet pilot would have to have the same type of skill as someone like you and almost have no fear in a way. You think that's true? I mean, the, the the fear, we do have fear. If you don't have fear, you know, you'll kill yourself. So yes, we do have fear. It's just that you manage the fear. Personally, even after, you know, my 21,000 hours of helicopter, I still have fear, but I, I manage, it's more like a, a risk management that I do better than back in the day. I think all the stunts are the same. They, you know, just before I do a stunt and I do a a difficult sequence, I do have, you know, my my stomach, I have, you know, a knot in my stomach. You know, I feel the pressure Mm -hmm. and that's fear. But I do manage it better than back in the day. So, yeah, I think we have maybe even more fear than people don't do any stunt. Uh What did mom and dad do? They were teachers, French teachers. uh, That's why we were in Africa because the French government, uh, because school in France is uh, mandatory until, I mean until you're 16 years old. So even if you're a French guy living in, in, in Africa, you need to go to school. So they have those French lycées that you find everywhere on the planet. Mm-hmm. And the French government sent the people. So my parents were one of them. You in, or what town were you in in Africa? So I was born and raised in Tunisia, but only stayed one year there. Then I went to, to uh, Senegal, which is west side of Africa. And I stayed in Saint Louis, Saint Louis, Saint Louis in Senegal, which is north of Dakar, 
which is the main town in Senegal, just mm -hmm. under the Mauritania border. It's really the west side of Africa, really that big, big, uh, big country there. And I stayed 13 years there and it was awesome. I mean, I've, you know, blessed to have my childhood over there. And then we went to Ethiopia on the east side in Addis Abeba which is uh, the main town in Ethiopia. That was more tricky because it was during the war. There were four years of uh, war zone, so it was a little bit tricky for us. But And then I went to uh, Germany, to Munich, to where my parents transferred. So all over the place. I mean, what is that like as a kid, you know, growing up in, in Africa and, and you have some conflict and so forth? Is it really as bad as what people say it is? For me, it was not bad at all. First of all, you know, Tunisia and Senegal, back then there was peace. So the thing with West Africa is people have in general like they go day by day and that was fantastic i mean all my buddies you know like in my class we were like 40 kids i was the only white guy and mm -hmm. it was amazing i mean there was friendship and there was no racist word in in our language it didn't exist Mm -hmm. It was just brotherhood. And look, for me, it was, it was fantastic time. I only remember good stuff on it. So I know today that, you know, the world is a little bit different, but there's more hate and things like that. I also, I think one of the reasons is because back, back then we didn't have no phone, no iPhone, no internet, no nothing. So people, I think, were living more the moment versus now you read all that stuff and then people have opinion and judgment. And then, I don't know, it may just be one of the explanation. Well, I have this thing called pocket narratives and i think whoever the powers may be put these pocket narratives out in society that creates issues and it drives that information drives people a certain way and we're so stupid we don't realize that so probably because y'all were brothers over there because you didn't have the pocket narrative driving people the wrong direction yeah you know what i mean then, uh, yeah Back then, there were no fake news or whatever you want to call it. And then it was easy. Yeah. It was easy. Uh, well, we're going through school. And did you ever think you would be a stuntman? And did you keep your imagination through school to go this direction for a career? The thing is, because I was in Africa with no internet, no television, no phone, I didn't know what you could you could do. The only thing I knew is I didn't want to be, you know, stuck in an office. I didn't want to be, I wanted to do an art door kind of job. But I had no really idea, the specific ideas I didn't have. I was into sport. I was into experience, adventure, all that stuff. But at the time, it was just a journey. You know, it was not like I didn't have a goal. And only when I was in my like 17, 18, to a point I wanted to be a stuntman in, in the film industry, but not as a pilot because I didn't know you could potentially do that. So I had some idea to do that. But, and then, you know, in the book, I'm explaining, you know, where I went. Then I wanted to be a, a fighter jet pilot, but it, it was more for the cliche that is representing that I didn't know what the job was. You know, it was more like a child dream, you know, a fighter jet pilot or mm -hmm. a cosmonaut, you know, like an airspace man or something. So it just, it, it was, it was a, a step-by-step -step kind of journey that lead me, lead me to the, uh, to what I'm doing today. And where did you do in stunts? What happened is, so I was, I was as French, you know, I, um, I was in Paris and then I, I wanted to do more filming as a, as a pilot. So back then I didn't know that there was a, there was a position as a stunt film pilot. So what happened is I was just working for TV, you know, sport event, like filming the Formula One race. I was I mean, so many selling boat and stuff like that. And I was just filming it in a stunty way without knowing it. You know, the helicopter was all over the place and do 3D 
kind of shots where you move, that you create the energy with the camera platform, the helicopter becoming the camera platform. But I didn't understand what I was doing. I was just doing it. And slowly by slowly, I went into that that kind of flying. And then I did most of the, the rally race, uh, the Paris-Dakar. Uh, you know, it's like the Barra race, but from Paris to Dakar and all the other uh, French race like that. So I did that for 10 years and filming those rally race. It's all over the world. And it was Paris, Moscow, Beijing. It was um, in Egypt called the Pharaon rallies and Morocco. So all, all over Africa and everything, I was filming the cars. And I was filming them as a stunt person, but I didn't know, which means super close to the cars, creating energy with the helicopter. But back then there was no name for that position. So then there is one one guy, his name is Larry Blanford. And I talk about him in my book, but he's a American uh, director of photography and he heard my name through I don't know who and then basically he, he called me and he said I have a movie to do in Venezuela and I need a French pilot because the helicopter that was based there was under a French registration and your license goes with the registration of the aircraft so he needed a French pilot so he said you know I heard you know you're filming a lot of things and uh, can, are you available and back then I didn't understand how that's going to work because it was not my helicopter it was you know helicopter from a foreign country and all that stuff he said, no, in America, we have that job called, you know, film stunt pilot. And you'll be basically that. And, and I told him, but who's going to pay me? He said, well, the production company will pay you. I said, so not the helicopter. So it's all those things that I didn't know that he explained it to me. He said, no, you'll be hired as such. Production will pay you and they'll pay the helicopter separately. So I said, that's amazing. That's basically when I realized that there was a position as a stunt film pilot. And that's when... After I've done that movie, I also realized that as a, as a pilot for the TV industry, the most important thing when you shoot is to know who's winning, who's losing. They don't really, they, of course, they care if it's beautiful and everything, but the primary goal is to, you know, tell the story of what's happening on the ground. When you do movie work, film work, the way you're shooting the action, that's how you tell the story and not necessarily what's going on on the ground, which means there's way more creative input from the pilot and the cameraman on board than when you do TV work. And that aspect really, really interests me a lot. That's when I decided to do the transition to the film work and from the film work to the stunt work. Interesting. So when you made this transition, what was your very, what was your first big project? The first film I did in the US was Fantastic Four, the first one. Okay. I've done other movies like, you know, Armageddon and Gladiator in Europe, but my first one in the US was that one. And I did it with my friend, Larry Blanford, that is, he did the, the first Top Gun as a jet fighter cameraman. And so he explained to me, he said, you know, if you want to be really a great, you know, stunt film pilot, you have to fly the camera. So forget the helicopter. So you have to connect with the machine in a sense that the helicopter disappear and then you're flying the camera. And I didn't really understand what he was telling me. It took me a little while to understand that what he was trying to imply is I need to move the camera in a way that I become like a dolly grip, on, you know, on the ground, you know, he's moving over the crane or like I'm responsible of the camera. And originally I thought that the cameraman on board would, would be doing that and tell me what to do but in fact uh, a film pilot he knows how to get the shot and of course it's it's uh, you work with the cameraman but it's not like because he can't really tell you go left go right because it, are you going to go a little bit left a little bit right are you going to go up two feet is it 10 feet is it 50 you need to see the, the shot and then he can give you some direct directions but you know what i mean you need to be ahead of the game so it took me a little while and then i understand that i can create way more energy i can create way more input and connection with the audience if i do more crazy stuff as a camera platform. Mm -hmm. And that became slowly by slowly my uh, my specialty, you know. So it's almost like a feel because you got to kind of stay ahead of the narrative, right? 
to kind of yes. get get that. It's, so it's you, a gut feeling, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a feel, and and you almost have to be in sync with the cameraman, kind of innately without talking. Would that that, that's exactly right. We're not talking yeah. in the helicopter. We yeah. usually don't, you know. Interesting. If so, he's panning left and then I see where he's going, immediately I know what he's trying to do and then I go. Mm. And then if I do the same, like, let's say I go to the right because there is a car moving and then he sees, we don't we talk, we don't talk. We just, we understand and we get it. Have you ever found a cameraman that you didn't sync with? Yes. <laughs> We're not flying I've, together I get anymore. <laughs> I'm sure that could be fun because a lot of cameramen are prima donnas. And uh... <laughs> well, I mean, you know, yes and no. I mean, you know, most of the cameramen that I work with are people that are part of our team, and then you know, we like family, so there is no problem there. And, and very rarely we use a cameraman from from the set, or but in that case, they're more waiting for us to help them because it's not that easy to to control the camera through the back seat on the joystick because you don't see the camera on the nose of the helicopter. So some time you don't know where he's pointing it you know so the we can help big time you know for them to know where they are so it, it's usually a super pleasant experience you know very rarely i had the guy that's looking left and when you know we had to go to the right but um and what any close calls at all that occurred while while doing this that kind of shook you up a little bit yeah yeah of course if it was an easy job you know uh, i think uh, more people would do it uh it's it's a challenging job there's a, a lot of risk involved there's responsibilities there's liability and then there's a lot of weight on our shoulders so yes there is close call but i would say more i go into my my career and my experience less you know, close call I have. We we prep way more than I was doing back in the days, you know, at the, the beginning. I have a team that is working with me and we prep, you know, often I, I compare that to give you a, a sense, but if we do a very complicated stunt sequence, like one second on screen is about a month of prep for us. To give you an idea, yeah, four seconds crazy stunt can be four months of prep. I don't know if you if you watch the, um, the last Extraction 2 movie on Netflix and in that uh, film, I'm landing a helicopter on a moving train at like 60 miles an hour to drop off uh, five bad guys that attacking the train. And really that sequence in the movie is maybe 10 seconds, but it took, it took us like seven to eight months to prep that sequence. Mm -hmm. So more we prep and then less risk, you know, we, uh, we have. It doesn't mean when you do the three, four seconds, you know, you don't, you know, we have pressure and not fear it's you manage the fear but mm -hmm. you know it's there for sure i mean i think i saw that movie but i think it had a, a fighting scene like every two seconds yes Was that it? <laughs> yes uh, but there's also a few helicopter sequences in there it's just that movie is, is a little bit it's special because they're using a different technique of filming called the warner mm -hmm. it's one camera following the action versus cutting mm -hmm. and then you are part of the action because you are with the camera. And that's basically what a helicopter platform is, is a one because there's only mm -hmm. one camera filming the action. And usually when when they are on the ground, they have 10 cameras and they cut, you know, from da 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 And that's why like an explosion can last 15 seconds because there's 15 cameras taking a second each. Mm -hmm. And then they cut it that way. Us in the helicopter is like a one -er. It's just one camera. We have to create the energy to get that and, and stay connecting with the audience. That's what I love, you know. What's the idea behind the one camera and the follow along? Because, you know, most most production guys that are really into production, they want eight cameras and five different angles. And 
I've always said that's too much. Where does this one camera thing come from? So the Warner, I'm, I, I'm not exactly sure where it's coming from, but it's basically, it's, it's to connect the audience with the action. So usually if there's only one camera and he's following the, the character running or jumping or whatever the guy does, you are him. So gotcha. suddenly the audience are with that person jumping and it's, and basically what he sees, you see what each time he's turning his face, what, that's what you see. And, and if you have eight cameras, they're going to show his face looking at the camera. Now, you're not going to see that. You're only going to see where he's going to see. So you're more into the action. And on Extraction 2, there's a 20 minutes fight sequence in the prison. And that's a Warner and the camera. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Uh, if you look at the behind the scene of that movie, it's very interesting. Like they, they pass the camera, like there's a car driving, there's a motorcycle exploding. The camera goes from the motorcycle through the window at 60 miles an hour. The camera goes through the car and it's crazy. It's insane. What I do in my job, that's exactly that. We, we are one. So we, we are, we are one camera and we have to create the energy. And this is why as a film pilot, you need to be experienced enough as far as the helicopter goes that it's not, it doesn't exist anymore as far as the experience. So you don't, you can't really take your time like, oh, can the helicopter do that? Can the helicopter do that? You need to know because you need to focus on everything else. Mm -hmm. You need to be 90% outside and 10% inside. If you are, you know, not experienced enough or you don't have the right helicopter, you're going to be 90% inside and 10% outside. And there's no way you can do the job like this. Gotcha. What's one of the most unique or odd moments that kind of, caught you off guard that you remember to this day, like one of your top stories that we might find in the book? I mean, there is a lot of them in the book that are as crazy, you know, from each other. And I mean, you know, when I, th that's what the book was interesting to do because I never realized how many uh, life-threatening events I had in my life before doing the book. I just know it was full, but I didn't, you know, if you look back, you don't really always remember. Mm -hmm. The brain is making that natural selection. And there's a few of them, but I did that one uh, race, French race called the Red Gauloise. Uh, Gauloise was from the cigarette back then. And I was in South America and, and in that race, you have horses. And one of the horse dehydrated and was going to die. And there was no access from that horse. We could not do anything to the horse. So they asked me to lift him up and to take him like a mile away to a place where we can, you know, give him proper care. But I never lift up a horse, you know, leaving a horse under a helicopter. 
So how we do that so he doesn't freak out, how we do that without him, you know, slippering anyway. So it was a scary moment. And uh, and what happened when I lifted the horse, I, it was a, very hot over there and I basically didn't have the power. So when the horse was under the machine and then it was just a, a scary moment. So it just, there's plenty of stuff like that, that life and death, you know, situation. I mean, look, there's so many to tell that uh, you and I will have to spend 10 hours. But I would say when I do the Fast and Furious movie, chasing high-speed cars, that's very challenging in general. I've done also a movie that is not out yet. It's Beverly Hills Cops 4 with Eddie Murphy. There's a crazy helicopter sequence in that one. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Which means, I mean, it was very challenging for me. It was, I was a foot from moving cars. You love to see it. And after, you know, when it's out there, then we can do another podcast and I go into the details of that one. But that one was a hell of a challenge. For me really really um really tough now do you interact with a lot of these uh stars that you worked with yes uh yes and no but uh, yes but in general you know we so you have the first unit and that you have the second unit uh first unit they do all the shot with the actors and then the second unit usually do all the shot with the action and the stunt stunt doubles my job is 90 percent with the second unit so we don't really you know connect too much with the actors now if we do connect with the actor we're usually limiting what we do with them because we can't take a risk to have something happen to the actor and then the, you know of course separate to the life uh, issues of course but you know the film won't be able to keep up if the actor get uh, injured or something there's only a few actors that uh, they do their own stunt like uh, Charlize Theron I love her I did a movie called Old Guards Two. it's not out yet and she really she was doing all her stunt in the helicopter with me and it was crazy how far she was willing to go I was very impressed but by the by the fact that she was wearing her shirt, really, you know, mm-hmm. it was at night, it was complex, it was very challenging. When the movie is out, I'll be able to talk more about it. And of course, you know, you have, um, you know, Tom Cruise and guys like that. But we, we're usually limiting the connection with them simply because... We, we don't want to expose them to um, any kind of uh, issues. Gotcha. You're the go-to guy, right? With this type of, <laughs> sounds like there's nobody else in the, in the space. I mean, there's, there are other guys doing things, but what happened is because I'm also French in addition to be American, even if my accent is not really American, but I have, I can fly in Europe because I have the European license and I can fly in the U S and I have other license worldwide. So all the other, American pilots that do what I do, they don't have the uh, the European license, so they can't fly in Europe. And there's a lot of movies like Fast and Furious. We go, we shoot in the US, but we also go to Italy, we go to Portugal, we go to Hong Kong, we go, there's so many places. And then people in the industry, they know that I have, a, you know, international licensing, basically. And uh, so that plus my expertise in the stunt. And, uh, you know, it takes time. And then uh, you're the guy. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Well, I saw in the book too, how does a guy that's a a stunt guy, I'm sure you're very appealing to a lot of different characters. And I'm sure a lot of people have asked you to do different things that you may not wanted to do. What was the deal with the uh, DEA guy? Yeah, well, I, it, it was a long time ago. I was doing a job in Costa Rica, but I, 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 I leased two helicopters from Miami in Florida. So I had to take the two helicopters from Miami, go through Key West, go above Cuba, go to Cancun, Mexico, cut it short, and then go to Costa Rica. Because otherwise you have to go all around Texas, you know, around on the America side and go to uh, Panama and go to Costa Rica. So um, anyway, back then I didn't have a lot of experience doing that. And because we had to cross from Key West to Cancun in Mexico, 
without landing in Cuba, because we were not allowed to land in Cuba, we put what uh, auxiliary fuel tank in those two helicopters. And I didn't know back then that if you put an ox fuel tank in the helicopter going in that region, as soon as the DEA find out that we were going to do that, they immediately thought we were a drug dealer and, you know, put basically a red flag on us. But we were going to do a race in Costa Rica for the, you know, a big race called the Red Goloas, which is, you know, in the book, I'm explaining everything on that race, but it was an event, a sport event. So we took off at like 5 a.m. from Miami with the two helicopters and the fuel tank. And we were five people, I think, two and three. We took off and then we stopped in Key West to refuel a last time before go doing the big jump to Mexico, you know, over Cuba. And as soon as we landed, we shut down the engine and then it was like in those, you know, as an American, it doesn't really talk to you, but as a French person back in the 80s, when we were looking at TV shows from America and it's a cliche. So we saw, it's not like a Dodge, but like a, 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 a sport car, yellow. I will remember all my life. And there was like a big eagle sticker on the hood. And basically people got out of that car and it was the DEA. It was like a special unit. I don't know what it was, but the guys got out. They had guns. They were not dressed up as a proper DEA agent with the sign or something. No, they were like civilian, but they were DEA. And they basically arrested us. They put the handcuff and took us to an office, separate offices, the five of us, and then they started questioning why we had, you know, auxiliary tank. And not only that, one of the two helicopters that we had, one, I didn't know, he had the latch under the carpet because that machine was used for drugs transportation back in the days. But my, my friend that bought it had no clue, you know, that mm -hmm. there was a latch under there. So long story short, that helicopter was, I, I guess, under surveillance, a soft surveillance. But then when we put the auxiliary tank, immediately that thought, red flag, you know, those guys are doing drugs. Long story short, after a few hours, they let us go, but they, they kept the two helicopters. And they said, you need to go, you know, there's going to be a, a court and judge and you have to uh, prove that this helicopter won't be used for, you know, drug stuff. And I said, wow, I mean, what the heck? And I had a race. So there was 300 uh, racers waiting for us. The organization, the, the helicopter was supposed to do medevac. You know, I mean, it was a big deal. So it was crazy. So in the book, I'm explaining the whole thing, the stress level. My English was crap back then. At the end, long story short, you know, they, uh, I mean, I'm not going to say they have to read the book, but uh, it was a, it was a crazy, crazy event, like insane, you know. So what do you do? You have this adventurous job and, and life and lifestyle of, of work. How about mama? Does mama worry? And, and what do y'all do in your free time? There's a few people that worry. My parents worry, of course, but you know, my wife and my kids also worried. I mean, first of all, for them, I mean, my parents are, you know, way, they're pretty old, you know, in their nineties. So, but I think now they, they think nothing is going to happen to me at this point. You know, they, they don't really see the danger because they're living in France. They're not here and I'm not sharing with them my emotions or my fear, you know, I'm, I'm very uh, light on that because I don't want them to, to get, you know, scared of anything. My wife is different. She's also a pilot. She doesn't fly anymore, but she, you know, has like more than a thousand hour of flying time. So she understands helicopters. She knows she's been with me on set and um, she was also a, a, what we call a pilot ground coordinator with me on set for a few years. So she knows exactly what's going on. And she, you know, she, she trusts and I'm very careful. And, uh, and my kids, you know, they, now this, I mean, I have a daughter who's 28 and I have two boys, uh, 17 and 19. And the two boys, you know, back eight, nine years ago, one of them told me, dad, you know, why are you taking that much risk, you know, for your family? That's not right. Back then I was trying to explain it to him. That was my job and I was trying to do it well. And, but now uh, he's, he's a surfer and he's surfing like 30 feet 
waves with water, maybe three feet of water. And mm -hmm. I'm telling him, how come you do that? And you accuse me back then to take a chance when you have no problem taking a chance. And what about your family? So now, you know, we, we have no problem talking about this. But, you know, I guess it's um, I'm trying to be very careful. Well, hopefully we gave people a peek behind the curtain of what it's like to be someone that has a job like you do, because, you know, you, it's a very small number very small. I mean, it's a niche type of yeah. thing. You know, where can we find the book and what do you want to get out of the book? Why did you write the book? So there was two reasons. So first of all, you can find the book on Amazon. You can find it on my website. You, know, you, find, you can get it on my Instagram. There's a little link. You can click on it. If you click on it, you go to my website immediately and then you can get it there. So, you know, you, you, you'll find it flying sideways. But the two reasons that we wanted to do the book, first reason is to uh, a legacy to my, to my kids because as a parent's, I don't know if you have kids yourself, mm -hmm. but what happened is the kids don't realize what was your journey to get where you are. Because when they're 15, 16, when they realize that the job you do, they have no clue how you got there. They know what you're doing now, but they have no idea. And to me, because at that age, there's also, have so, they have so many questions how, you know, what I should do, what kind of job I should do. You know, they have a lot of questions and they don't have answers. So the book was to give them a legacy on that and to explain to them how we got where we are and hopefully to give them guidance for that part. And then the second reason on my social media, I have so many daily messages from young pilots and from young kids, um, you know, in their 18, 16, 20, 22, whatever, even age, even 40 years old. And they're asking me guidance as far as their career, the life decision and what they want to do. And then I'm trying to respond to each of them. But sometimes it's overwhelming because I'm 50 and then I'm, I, I can't expand, you know, a conversation through social media. So I was thinking, okay, let's do the book and explain to them how I did it. And then in the book, we're trying to give a sense of each time. Uh, it's, there's like 25 chapters. And for each chapter, I'm explaining what I took from that life event and what it did to me and what I use for the next chapter in my life. So it's kind of a, an explanation for them. So they understand, you know, the journey. It was never about the end goal because the problem is, I think most of the kids out there, they put a name to the end of the, like they want to be this, but they don't realize that it's the transition to get to that that is more important than the end goal itself. Because the end goal, you don't really control that. Let's say you want to be a stunt film pilot. I guarantee you, if, if that's your goal, you're going to end being a fighter, fighting pilot in Idaho. And you may be super happy doing that. It's just the journey took you somewhere else. But the journey is the, the foundation of everything. So for me, in the book, I explained that each time you know, I had negative influence or negative answers from older adults or older people that told me you will never be this, you will never be that. I never really listened to them in the book. Yet, the, you know, I, I'm explaining when I did the jet fighter school to be, you know, uh, selected in the French US Air Force to be a fighter jet pilot. When I did all the, the week of the selection, at the end of that week, and I thought I did well. The, uh, the, the, the general that was in charge of all the, you know, the, the future pilots, he said, you know, he, he asked me to come in his office and he said, you know, Fred, you failed the test. You will never be a good pilot. You'll be a terrible pilot. That's what he told me face to face. He said, you will never be a pilot. You should do something else in your life. And I was depressed for a couple of weeks. And then I'm thinking, who is that guy to tell me, you know, who I am and who I'm not? But in the book, I'm explaining the whole thing. But I mean, luckily, mm -hmm. I didn't pay attention to that guy because look at today, you know? Yeah. Well, I think everybody that has a unique job or a job that seems where you can't touch it 
have probably been told that multiple times. And I think it's unique that you want to show the struggle because kids, kids, the 17, the, the teens, they don't see the struggle because of social media. Uh, Everything looks right, pretty. Right. You know? Beautiful sunset and you don't see the 200 people fighting in the back to take the photo. Yeah. You know, yeah. but so the, the, the book is because we didn't want, you know, we, we wrote it with my wife, you know, Peggy Noor, both of us. And then because it was not easy to, to write the book. First of all, we're not, you know, writers. So we use our, my 13 log books as pilot logbooks where all the hours in there so to for a timeline and to retrieve the, the facts and everything but the, the idea was really to, we, we we didn't want to be arrogant and it was just to explain and and what did i thought about each each life lesson and try to if we can give guidance or ideas to those young folks out there it's that's very important to me uh, try to help you know carry my experience to give it to somebody else nice nice well uh, i appreciate you coming on the show and hopefully that whoever's listening out there can learn something from this especially if you want to be a stunt pilot and to check out Fred North's book it's called Flying Sideways and you can get that at any place that sells books especially Amazon so hopefully this has been a, uh, a learning session for whoever's listening and I appreciate you coming on the show just one thing I want to tell them if they want a signed copy of my book there is a, a, a small library called a Diesel bookstore.com I'll send you the link and the library that is not, not far from my house so I can sign those books if they want a signed book awesome awesome yeah well Flying Sideways by Fred North like I said I appreciate you coming on the show You're welcome. and my name is John Edmonds Cosma the CEO of Bang Productions thank you Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 